beginning with Ayn Rand herself, objectivists who comment on the state of the world tend to analyze the cultural and political horrors of our age. But there are also many good people in the world who have achieved many great things. Why all the negativity? What explains the negative emphasis in objectivist commentary? That is a question we are going to talk about today. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. We're going to talk about the question, why are our objectivists so negative? My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me today is my colleague, Ankar Gatte, senior fellow at ARI. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. So this is a question that I think we've, we've gotten from people in our audience in many different forms on all kinds of occasions. Uh, I, I noticed even in uh, one of the comment sections on a post announcing this episode that somebody said something to the effect of, the reason is that objectivists have become objectionists. Uh, and that's one I've heard uh, several times before. My parents used to call me an objectionist uh, because there were so many things that I was objecting to. And it, it's true that uh, objectivists have a lot to object to in our culture. Uh, whether that means we are so negative, I think is something that we should discuss the meaning of. And um, Ankar, I know you had uh, thoughts on even the, the meaning of the question that we should maybe get out of the way before we kind of survey the facts of the matter here. Yeah, as you say, this is, um, we're doing this topic in part because we've got so many questions in this vein. And I've been at ARI for a long time now, over two decades. We've got this particularly at ARI. Why is uh, a lot of the work you do, why is it critical of things going on in the culture, intellectual figures, intellectual trends? And when it's asked that it's the, why are you so negative? There, you have to think about like, what are you classifying as negative? What are you classifying as positive? What is this access? Um, that you're supposedly ranking things, okay, if you're doing that, that's on the side of the positive. And if you're doing this, well, that's on the side of the negative. And it's worthwhile, I think, just bringing up at the outset, some of the examples that people bring up, like when you do this, that's viewed as, okay, now you're doing something that is negative, it's critical. And I, for most of the examples people bring up, I would not classify them in the way that they classify them. And so that's part of what is interesting about thinking of this as a phenomenon, because I understand it. It, it There's um, certain motivations for this question, which I'm very sympathetic to. Um, and as we'll talk about, Ayn Rand got similar questions to this, and she didn't dismiss them. She answered them when she thought it was, this is a real genuine question. She answered them. She also thought there was something wrong with the question, but it's there's something behind this question, and that's why it's worth talking about. Yeah, so this is a question that didn't that comes up or came up not just uh, for us, but it came up for Ayn Rand, and you can get a sense of why it might have come up if you look at kind of the record of her commentary over the years. I flipped through her periodicals, uh, her three periodicals, uh, and came up with a list of all all the at least negative sounding titles and topics that she commented on over the course of the 1960s and 70s. And so, you know, right from the beginning of her first publication, the Objectivist Newsletter, she, she's commenting on the growing statism and collectivism uh, of the Kennedy administration and the regulatory state associated with that, uh, critiquing and condemning FCC censorship and, and the, over the reach of antitrust laws, uh, the bankruptcy of our foreign policy, the deterioration of values in the arts. She's got an essay called The Aesthetic Vacuum of Our Age. And if you look to some of the other essay titles that lament the state of our culture, uh, the irrationality of uh, philosophy and religion, there's our cultural value deprivation, requiem for man, uh, the age of envy. Uh, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, uh, faith and force destroyers of the modern world. Well, so the, the modern world has been destroyed by these things is the suggestion of that title. These are pretty negative sounding titles and, and, and uh, negative themes in 
for commentary. We at ARI have uh, are, are guilty as charged in the same respect, at least, that uh, we've continued to comment on many of the same issues as she did. We just had a episode uh, lamenting the uh, the extent of antitrust law, the, the the motivations behind antitrust law just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, likewise, many things to say about the expansion of leftist collectivism, the intellectual collapse of today's conservatism. We have commented and bemoaned the rise of uh, tribalism in today's culture and politics. And if you want to talk about the bankruptcy of foreign policy, look at the record of our commentary on foreign policy, especially since 9-11 leading up to just Monday uh, when you and Elon went on to do a special episode about the fall of the of, of Afghanistan to the Taliban and what could be uh, more negative in comments in, in, in the, the, the kind of tone of commentary than that. So what why do you say why would you say Ankar that that there's some lack of clarity about calling these kinds of comments negative in an unqualified way? I think to get to that, it's helpful to bring up some of the positives. I mean, and your list of negatives, I would add, you brought up a lot of Ayn Rand's essays and titles. And if you think of the book that was clearly cultural commentary, like collecting cultural commentary, it's the new left, the anti-industrial revolution. Um, and that's a whole collection of things. And it's if that's not a negative title in the sense that she's saying there's some Theme afoot that is really, really destructive. And it's going to take us back to pre-industrial civilization. Then if you ask, okay, so these are lists of supposed negatives. And then if you ask, what is it, what is it that you want? What would you regard as positive um, commentary? The if you if you take Ayn Rand, some of the things will that will be brought up, I think probably most often will be brought up that she talked about the moon landing um, and the space program and in glowing terms about, and what we're witnessing is the, the power and efficacy of reason. Um, but you can take others, uh, there, there's, she talked about some trends that she thought were, they, it's, it's whether it's probably too strong to call them trends, the possible beginning of trends. She talked, for instance, um, so she has book reviews, one of the, the, of the books that she regards as basically good, not that she agrees with everything. One of the ones that made it into a collection of essays that's published after her death is on Aristotle. And it's uh, John Herman Randall's Aristotle. And she talks positively that if philosophy revives an interest in Aristotle, that will be a very positive thing. Another trend, and again, it's too strong to call it a trend, but sort of a possible start of a trend is an interest in Montessori education. And she said, and she talked of that as it's a kind of grassroots revival. Um, if you think of these as positives, you get, a sense that it's, um, we're talking about cultural trends. And one of the basic questions is, is the trend mixed so that there's a lot of positives going on in terms of thinking of the direction in which a culture is going and a lot of negatives, or is it essentially, but then there's a question of what does essentially mean? that it's negative. And if it's essentially negative, then what you're gonna talk about in when you're doing cultural commentary, and if that cultural commentary is significantly about the direction in which the culture is going, you're going to be talking about things that are going wrong. But even there, there's a difference between, so take, take something from ARI, not from Ayn Rand. The commentary after 9-11, I view it as essentially positive. So 9-11 is a really negative event, but the commentary is about how to understand this event and therefore how to act. And the therefore how to act is the positive. Like what do we have to do? 
And part of the reason that we at the Institute decided that we're going to talk a lot about 9-11 is precisely because we thought, yes, there's awareness. Um, there was shock, anger, fear, a desire for um, that, we that the US as a country, as a nation and the government takes action to this affront, to seeing the Twin Towers fall, um, attempt to, I mean, attack on the Pentagon, the attempt to attack the Capitol as well. It, it's this warrants a response. And the response, our view was, is going to be really, really bad unless people challenge ideas that they have. So it was about, these are the ideas that you have to challenge. This is how you have to think about the event, not how it's being thought about. And if you thought about it in this different way, you would have a very different view of what actions are required. So what does it mean to say that, well, that's negative? We're talking about something is a negative event. That's certainly true. But the commentary is not just look at how stupid people are. It has a positive element to it. Of This is what we need to do instead of what we're doing. So I think part of what you're saying is that even if we're looking at the world and seeing negative things happening. We're also trying to give positive guidance away from uh, these catastrophes. And I think implicit in that point is a related one, which is that very often when you're, the policies that we choose to criticize or the events that we choose to condemn, we're choosing it in part motivated by a conception of certain kinds of positive values we're trying to defend. And so I think a good example here is the commentary that we did a few weeks ago on the attacks on uh, Jeff Bezos uh, and his space project. Uh, outwardly, you know, it, it, on the face of it, it looks like we're, we're lamenting these attacks. But I mean, half of the time in that episode was spent saying this is an amazing achievement and needs to be defended and explaining why it was an amazing achievement. And uh, that's, that's a, it's not just that we're motivated by uh, defending these kinds of values, but, but that it's, we're, we're actually speaking in, de in defense of them and, and praising them in the context of critiquing those who are attacking them. Um, yeah, I so, think the same about, uh, I, I mean, in regard to, almost everything that was listed. So about the revival of antitrust, that's a negative again in the culture. And it really is, there's a, there's a push to revive antitrust that it's, it, there's people arguing in effect that antitrust has lost its bite and we need to restore it. And we need government should be using this uh, arbitrary power more often to, uh, they won't put it like this, but to cripple businesses. But it's again, it's to cripple the most successful businesses. And to, the reason that this is worth talking about and why it's a significant trend is it's directed at the good and it's aimed at crippling or destroying the good. And to point that out and to stand up for that and to bo both point at that how Amazon is being criticized for its very achievements, you can again classify that as a negative, but I think it, of it as an, it's essentially positive. Um, so part of what is going on is, and this is when people are thinking like this, th this is an error, I think. If what it means to be positive is to look only at the good and not look at evil things and not talk about them, there's a question of, can you give evil too much significance? Yes, but is it, are you, do you have a positive orientation if you ignore the evil? Um, and the answer to that, I think, is no. And certainly objectivism's answer to that is no. I think there's an attitude out there that would concede that you've got to point out the, the major negatives, especially if doing so is necessary to defend positive values. But we'll, this, this attitude will also say, yeah, but why can't you spend more time pointing to what's positive uh, in our culture? And uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, there's something plausible about this kind of question because there is something important about motivation by love as opposed to motivation by fear 
it's 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 the only healthy way to to live and to motivate yourself. I suspect that it was something like that attitude that prompted a question uh, that was sent to Ayn Rand herself uh, back in 1967. There was a reader of her periodical, The Objectivist, who uh, who noted that uh, this periodical had periodically been running uh, a a column called the Horror File, where uh, the editors would select some quotation or uh, some anecdote uh, about the then contemporary culture that kind of illustrated the depths of the irrationality uh, of various disasters in politics and in culture and humanities, et cetera. And the person said, basically asked, I, I see why you do the horror file, but why couldn't you also have an achievement file? And I was recently uh, going over this old uh, issue of The Objectivist, and I, I noticed that they published uh, a response by Ayn Rand to this, to this reader that was very interesting. And I wanted to share some of uh, what she said in response to this reader. I think it's relevant to the broader question that we're talking about today. So three paragraphs. The crisis of today is philosophical, not journalistic. It's a battle of fundamental ideas, not a matter of single instances of virtue or vice. Only a philosophical trend can have any practical significance now, and only a philosophical revolution can save us. It's much too late to gain hope from single out-of-context gestures, statements, or events. Individual acts of rationality can be important, perhaps more important than ever, but only if they are part of a man's consistent philosophical policy. Random items, even if they could be found, can neither save us nor inspire us today. Uh, next paragraph, I cannot communicate the extent to which I wish it were possible to publish an achievement file or to report more frequently on positive events, but it is earlier than you think, a reference to an earlier article of hers. Printing so-called inspirational quotations from random sources would be worse than futile. It would imply a sanction which we cannot grant to those sources. Whenever a modern achievement is of significant value to students of objectivism, we report it or eagerly, either in our book reviews or in Barbara Brandon's uh, cultural barometer, uh, she mentions. But then she closes by saying, in today's context, an exact counterpart of the horror file would be a file of events reflecting the influence of objectivism on the daily political cultural life of this country. It is much too early for that. Now, you have to think about when she's uh, making these remarks. This is 1967, March 1967. Now, uh, admittedly, the, the moon landing hadn't yet happened. But uh, even though this is the amidst the turmoil of the 1960s, there's still a lot of great stuff happening, major advances uh, in technology, uh, in, in the standard of living. Uh, and this America is still living through some of its best days. Uh, or has just gotten through living through some of its best days, perhaps. Uh, and she says it's earlier than you think. Now, there's a lot that's happened since then. Uh, some of it, I would argue, as horrific as what was happening later in the 1960s, and 9-11 would be a good example. So uh, there's also been progress. But I think part, and part of what she seems to be stressing here, Ankara, and tell me if you agree, is to the extent that objectivists are negative, at least you know when they call out the big disastrous events and trends of the day, they're doing it because things are negative. And objectivism is about being objective. It's about it's about uh, acknowledging the facts, especially when they are really significant facts. This doesn't mean that there is no hope. It doesn't mean that there aren't solutions that we can find, or it doesn't mean that there isn't guidance. Uh, that can lead us out of these disasters. But as they say in you know, the 12-step programs, the first step is admitting you have a problem. Uh, and that's, in effect, I think what she's saying our culture needs to do. Do you agree with that? Yes. And what's important to then do is to identify the nature of the problem. And so what I think she takes the horror file to be about and why an achievement file, there's not a parallel that, that you couldn't have, there's nothing to put into it. You could have to open the file, have an achievement file, but it would remain basically empty. 
And that doesn't mean that there's no people achieving anything in the culture. So what, when, what the problem is, and she writes about it often, from her perspective is that our culture is intellectually bankrupt. And let me underline the intellectual. It, she's not saying there's no production going on. She's not saying we're not advancing scientifically and technologically. She's saying from an intellectual, and that basically means, I think, the science is dealing with the humanities. They're at best bankrupt, that they have nothing positive to offer. Um, in some of the essays, she puts it, the intellectuals, and again, this is pr primarily people in the humanities, in philosophy, in political science, in history, in economics, she says that they're operating worse than zero. That, so that, and which means they're moving us away from what is good and towards what is evil. And the horror file is meant to be um, examples of this, but as symptomatic. So it's not in what you quoted, she said, it's, we're not collecting some random list of things. So what they're giving is things that they think is, are symptomatic of the intellectual atmosphere today. So they're not quoting some guy on the internet who posted something in a drunken rage or something. They're quoting things that are taken as respectable and usually that they get no opposition. That it's, this is taken almost as bromidic, but if not as a bromide, then yeah, maybe it's a little challenging, but it's basically right. And what, I mean, it's a horror file from objectivism perspective, because these things are all essentially wrong, but it's like, that's, they're taking the temperature of the culture, if you want to put it like that. And there's no counterpart to that of taking it from the, yeah, but there's a whole bunch of intellectual trends in the humanities that are great. And let's give some quotations to represent that or some instances to represent that. I think her view is there just isn't such at the time. And so when, you, when we're asking what she's looking at, she's looking at the intellectual direction and the philosophical trends, not everything that's going on in the culture. And from that perspective, she thinks it's essentially negative. And you're fooling yourself if you don't uh, acknowledge that. And that's what you said in terms of, we recognize the facts. And she thinks to recognize the facts about the direction of the culture, philosophically, intellectually, you have to see it's very negative. Something I noticed recently uh, is that there, there's a there's a there's a theme scattered throughout her work, in, in her nonfiction work, of remarking on the disparity uh, between the progress in the sciences, especially the physical sciences, and the humanities that were taking leaps and bounds into the future, uh, scientifically speaking, but we're still we're still relying on a primitive tribalistic philosophic outlook, especially with regard to morality. Now, I suppose that somebody could ask the question about even that kind of observation, why is that disparity so significant of, of all the disparities there could be? Uh, yeah, sometimes we take one step forward and take two steps back, but why isn't it two steps forward and one step back? Uh, why is it that the philosophical negatives outweigh all the other positives, and maybe a different way of putting this question, because you had said a moment ago that you thought these trends were essentially negative. Well, essential is sort of a, a judgment call there. What's the basis for that judgment? I think part of what she's arguing is that the humanities set the overall framework for how people view themselves, their own lives, how they view the world and what is possible in the world and what to strive for in the world. That the humanities are the fundamental. They're not the only thing involved in that, but they're the fundamental. And so again, if we're thinking about the direction of the culture, it is going to be set by the people who say, this is how you acquire knowledge. And indeed, is knowledge even possible to acquire? And these are the values you should pursue. And that 
this is adopted in one way or another by everybody in the culture. So take, for instance, we brought up for the new left, the anti-industrial revolution. She's writing about the, the environmental movement, it's, it's called at the time, and she calls it the ecological movement. But she's writing at the, at the start, really, of that movement. And she says, this is ominous, this movement. It's coming out of the new left's rejection of science, of the possibility of progress. And they're embracing a return to primitivism. And she's commenting on this movement. Part of the comment is, like, we live in unprecedented technological achievement. And this is the result of scientists, businessmen, creating on a level that was previously undreamt of, that, we, that this is even possible. And I mean, if you read her essay, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, it in certain ways is an ode to technology, to factories, to industry. But she thinks it's possible to lose that. And it's possible to lose it even if science and technology continue. And I think the success of the environmental movement is an example of that. There's so many things that they have halted the progress of. If you just think of nuclear power as one, um, this was the promise of we could progress in a, in, a, in a way that, again, people thought was, would have been impossible. Nuclear has an unprecedented level of success, of safety, and yet it was possible to demonize it to such an extent that there's basically no creation of nuclear energy in the US anymore, and worldwide it's very precarious. And you can explain that if you're only looking at science and technology. And I would, I would add to that, it's not simply that you can lose the, the technological achievements. It's, it's more than that. It's that the, the very technological achievements, uh, if they are in the hands of a culture whose moral compass is being set by primitive backwards ideas in philosophy and in morality, uh, those, those tools can be used for the sake of destruction. I mean, this is a point that I think a lot of people recognize. You mentioned nuclear power, but I mean, the, the, the nuclear bomb, when the Soviets got that, the, the, this was not technological progress that was uh, unalloyed good anymore. And, and you could look also just at the, the story in Atlas Shrugged, is, is she telling a, a story that is simply meant to inspire us uh, because of the great achievements of Dagny in building the John Galt line and Reardon in building uh, in creating his medal. Well, no, in fact, part of the whole point of the story, and I, this is perhaps a bit of a spoiler for some people, but it's uh, is that they have to realize that they've been creating something that's being put into the hands of evil. And that's part of the reason uh, that they go on strike in the story when they realize that there's a, they are sanctioning their own destruction. Um, that's a bigger topic, but it's 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 connected here. Um, and I wanted to come back to saying a little bit more about Atlas later. Even yeah. still, um, there's there's still I think, and I feel the tug of the following kind of objection myself, which is uh, Ayn Rand herself describes objectivism as a, as a philosophy for living on earth. And, and you've, you've mentioned on card that even when we're uh, criticizing various developments, there's still positive guidance that's being offered uh, in the face of it. But if, if objectivism is a philosophy for living on earth, shouldn't, why shouldn't objectivists then focus on giving advice for sort of everyday life? Uh, why so much focus on politics, on, on culture? Why not, in effect, uh, focus on kind of self-help topics uh, that could actually help people live better lives, happier lives, freer lives, et cetera? Yes, I think it, that's a valid question in a certain context. And the context, if this is the context, I'm sympathetic to. So 
if you have someone who thinks the essence of objectivism is that it enables you to identify the evil trends in the culture, you're missing what the essence of objectivism is. And if a person's kind of um, intellectual orientation is to only do that, that's a problem. So if it, take Ayn Rand, for instance, you gave a list at the start, we talked about, there's many things that she wrote where she's analyzing cultural and philosophical intellectual trends that she views as negative. That is not all she writes. So we didn't mention, for instance, there's a book, Virtue of Selfishness, which the title is put in the positive. It's about a new code of morality. It's about various of the principles of this new code and have how radically different they are from, you can put it just broadly as conventional morality of what you've been told morality is about and so on. No, here is what it actually is. Capitalism, the unknown ideal. Again, a positive title. And many of the essays are about a proper understanding of what capitalism actually is, how to think about it, what its principles are, how they operate. And then there's contrast, and a lot of contrast, to the negatives. So there's many things that Ayn Rand wrote that are, that are not cultural commentary. They're about the nature of objectivism, the nature of positive philosophical principles. And if you broaden that to, it, was her focus essentially on the negative or the positive? The novels are um, the all uh, framed around what is the ideal? She said her whole motivation in writing is the portrayal of a new moral ideal. And that's what, in various ways, We the Living, Anthem, The Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged are about. And so thinking philosophically, your orientation should be about how to live. And if you think objectivism is right, it's how does objectivism help me to live? That is all true. And if a person thinks that what life is about is just about identifying the evil and even just identifying the evil and avoiding it, but not doing anything positive. There is something wrong with that orientation. But as we said, when I think when Ayn Rand did cultural commentary, when AI does cultural commentary, it's framed around what would the positive be here? Not just let's avoid this, but what would the actual positive look like? What would a proper foreign policy look like? Not just let's not do what George Bush or Obama is saying, it's what should we actually do? And if that's your orientation, that's part of what it looks like to live on earth and to use philosophy to live on earth. And you should do that not just at the cultural level, but you're in your own life as well. Like not just what is wrong, but how should I actually be living? I also think there's a kind of artificial separation between uh, thinking about the world around you and thinking about your own life that's implied by this question as if all one needs philosophy for with regard to the world around you is to say, all these ideas are wrong, I'm going to avoid evil and then go about living my life. Well, it's not as simple as that because I mean, you still live in the world and the world has an effect on you. And the, the negative trends and ideas have an effect on you as well. And I mean, so th there's an essay that Ayn Rand wrote in that book that you mentioned, Virtue of Selfishness, how to live or how to lead a rational life in an irrational society. Yeah. And one of the major things that she emphasizes there is the most crucial virtue for living in a context like that is the virtue of justice, is, is pronouncing moral judgment of the, of the evils around you. And we could have a whole separate conversation on, on what that means, and we have done other podcasts on that topic, but uh, I think it's also helpful to realize that when she's saying that, she's not simply saying, well, by pronouncing judgment on the evil, you're you're going to demoralize the evil and that will lessen their power and help protect you. I mean, it's, it's, it's that, that's part of it. But a point that I think you made a few years ago to me that I thought was very helpful was that it's, it's not even just about combating the evil and 
defending yourself against the evil. It's also about keeping uh, your own values alive in your mind and in your soul, that it's a way of expressing integrity to your own values. Um, because one of the positives that she, that Rand emphasizes uh, and, and urges us to engage in is, is, to, is to integrate the world around us, is to think about uh, what, are the, what are the values at stake in, let's say, this news story? Uh, how, how, what difference do those values make to me? And if I don't stand up to defend them, what does that mean about how I live by these values and practice these values and pursue them in my own life? How can I really be serious about them if I'm not willing to uh, you know, generalize beyond my particular situation and see how the same issues can be at stake for other people? Y yes. I think the one of the things one should wonder about if you're unwilling to sort of confront evil and to name it is does the good really matter to me and does it is it really operative in my day-to-day -day life and to take take an example from the objectivist world i find it horrifying the way in which Silicon Valley is attacked by many objectivists. And to me, it's, it, it, it's you're attacking something that is essentially positive. It's not to say that everything these Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg uh, or Steve Jobs before he died did was good. But if you don't think the essence of this achievement is it's a, that it's an achievement, that it's good and that they're in essence, being attacked for their virtues, not for whatever flaws that they might have. You're, you have to think like, is the good really operative in my motivate? Is that what animates me? Or is it I'm always just on the lookout for things that I think are evil, that are flaws? So, and that's what I'm focused and fixated on. And I think in this case, you're losing sight of the forest because you're focused on a tree that that tree matters so it's not as the forest is made out of trees but it's made out of a lot of trees and you have to see the big picture and be motivated by actual values and that a real concern from justice comes it's a motivation by values not a motivation by fear that i want to avoid the negative but it's i want to reach the positive and the evil is making it harder and harder to reach the positive and that's why it has to be identified and condemned and, and that example that you mentioned, the, the people who, who criticize Silicon Valley for their politics, in effect, that to me is the example of the wrong kind of emphasis on politics, where uh, you, you assume that these people are kind of reducible to their politics. There's nothing more than their politics, when in fact, there are real positive cultural trends associated with technological developments uh, in this industry that you have to acknowledge again if you're trying to be objective in spite of whatever uh, uh, political problems some of the people have. I think many of them separate their political thinking from what they do at work. They don't always and that's a problem and you've got to comment on it when it when it's when it's real but you know it's 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 possible to separate it for them and it's possible to I think separate it in our minds as well when when you don't see a connection. Um, I also think that there are a lot of people who will who will accept many of the things that we're saying, and and they'll they'll say, well, you know, from the perspective of if if we're having to plan our lives uh, in a world like the one that we live in today, yes, we have to acknowledge all of the problems and all of the evil for all the reasons that we've been talking about. But they'll also perhaps make the point that if we're thinking now instead of ourselves as members of a philosophic movement who are trying to promote a certain kind of idea and trying to win followers to this idea and to convince them to join our side, there's, there's, a, there's a critique here about rhetoric. Uh, they'll say, even if everything you say is true, doesn't emphasizing the positive inspire people to follow these ideas rather than bemoaning all the things that are wrong with the culture? don't you in effect attract more uh, flies with honey, uh, which is maybe the wrong metaphor because they're not flies, but uh, it's, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a point here about the, uh, 
persuasive power of focus on the positive. And what do you think of that kind of criticism? Uh, again, I think there, there's something valid to it, but you have to get precisely what. So you put it as emphasizing. That's different than, for instance, just focusing on the positive and not mentioning the negative. That's not emphasizing that. And that borders to, or it flows into whitewashing. Um, and so I think it's true that you want to emphasize the positives. If you're trying to persuade someone of something, it has to be that the person thinks of it as this would be good to do, or this would be valuable to do. And if you're not, if, if that is not salient to the person, then it, there's a question of motivation of it is like, how important is this? If it's not moving me towards what's good, what's true, what's valuable, how important is it? And if you're only focusing on the negative and while well, we need to avoid this negative, you're not emphasizing the positive. And that has a real motivational problem and legitimately, I think, because persons should be motivated by what's true, by what's good, by what's valuable. But having said that, it is not true that to point out that something is evil is demotivating. And it's not even true that to point out to somebody that you're involved in something that's evil is demotivating. Um, because any good person will, if they think like I have been unwittingly or unknowingly helping things that now I think of as, yeah, that's evil, that's a problem. But it's a problem only in the context of yeah, and what I want to be doing is pursuing things that are good and positive. And that's what I thought I was doing, and I'm not. So if you take, for instance, um, take something prior to objectivism. I think of the abolition movement like this. And if you think of it just as rhetoric, a lot of it was about the evil of slavery and of people not actually facing the evil of slavery, of what actually goes on, of how brutal it is. And that this has to be pointed out and pointed out repeatedly. This is part of the argument of convincing people. But it's in the context of these are human beings. These are people who are actually capable of living a life if they had the freedom to do so. And what is horrifying about this is they're deprived of it um, so the evils are pointed out and have to be pointed out, but they're in the context of a broader positive and that like, isn't the American ideal that everybody lives in freedom, not half the people do and half don't. And if you think of it as in terms of the impact on someone to, to, for that person to come to think, you know, I've, I've either actively or passively supported slavery or not thought if it's a big deal if it's extended to new states and so and that was evil what i was doing that is motivating and the idea that it's not i think is just psychologically and morally false i think it's helpful to make a distinction between the two types of audiences that you just mentioned the, there's the people who disagree with you who maybe share some of the ideas you're criticizing and the ones who maybe agree with you more and I think you spoke to each of those categories and I would say something about each of them myself uh, one of them is that if you're if you're talking about people who let's say agree with your basic value set uh, is it demoralizing to them to point out the real problems in the world especially if they themselves see them well no I don't think so. Uh, I've known a number of objectivists who've, who've gotten involved in the philosophy and in the movement in effect because they thought that objectivists were the only ones who were telling the truth uh, and that everybody else was, was evading uh, the reality of what was going on around us. I know one person in particular who uh, back when I was in, in graduate school uh, and 9-11 happened, uh, a number of us who were involved in the local objectivist club uh, did a campaign to, you know, uh, call for uh, war against uh, terrorists in the states that sponsor them. We put posters up. We 
uh, you know, chalked the quad and everything. And, and uh-huh. this person saw that and joined our club and, and, and said the exact thing I was just mentioning that, uh, that this was because we were the only ones who were willing to say that how terrible uh, this attack was and what kind of response was, was warranted by it. And then from the other, for the other category, uh, the people who maybe don't share the, the basic value orientation. Here, I put myself in the category, in that category before I got interested in objectivism. And for me, the thing that I found uh, motivating uh, about reading The Fountainhead was, was realizing how much I thought I was like Peter Keating and I didn't want to be that way. And, uh, and I wanted to be more like Roar. And so that's, but that's because the book was criticizing uh, secondhandedness and that kind of outlook. And I think there, I mean, there's other examples of that that I could give. And I know other people, uh, you know, who've, who've had their minds changed because of the criticisms of their own views that they've heard uh, from objectivists. And you can think of the fountainhead as, again, going back to the question, and it's important, and it often is important, to phrase questions properly. You can have invalid questions, you can have confused questions, you can have misleading questions, and you put it, this, this question what we're talking about now, about emphasizing the positive. Again, I would say the fountainhead emphasizes the positive. It emphasizes Howard Rourke, but it also contains a lot of characters who are unsavory, uh, one of the principal ones being Peter Keating. And part of uh, the message a reader gets from that, and I think this is part of the, in terms of thinking of it as communication and persuasiveness, this is what you do when you're pointing out that something, either the person's involved in evil or it's something that they're doing is wrong and morally wrong. What you want to project is two things. It's wrong and you could do better. Um, So you're trying to project to the person, this should be beneath you. You should be better than this. And what Ayn Rand always offers is you could be better than this. If this is what you're doing, it's bad and it's destructive and it has probably destructive consequences you don't even realize. So often what she points out is like, it's even more evil than you might've thought. But there's always, look, you don't have to be this way. You have a choice about this and you could have a better orientation. This is what that would look like. And that um, to any person who is either like, I put it as unwittingly involved in evil and things, but even if it's partly wittingly, that it's partly, I've gone along some bad things and, and accepted some bad things and not for that good reasons and so on. It's worth, if you're, if it's a respect for that person to point that out to the person and to tell them, like, this is not your fate. You don't, this doesn't have to be you, but this is right now what you're doing. And Ayn Rand, I think that message many people get from her, her writings. And it's, again, it's emphasizes the positive but it's not just a focus on the positive. Here I'm reminded of uh, the relationship between Francisco and Reardon in Atlas Shrugged, where Francisco is obviously trying to win Reardon over to his side, uh, but one of the ways he does it is by, if not saying explicitly, then by implying that, that Reardon is actually guilty of uh, a great crime. And that, as you, as you mentioned, he, he does. He can do better, and he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to bear that guilt, uh, and that that persuades Reardon. Since I mentioned yeah. Atlas, I thought maybe we should close on this kind of question because if if things really are as bad as uh, we're suggesting that they are, I guess there are some people out there who would say, "Well, why don't we all just go on strike like like they do in the novel?" What would be your response to that? Well, there's a, there's a lot of things to say about that. Here's two. So when we say things are bad, it's again, what we're talking about is the intellectual philosophical trends that they're moving us in a bad direction. That takes time for that to happen. And it's not as though life in the West is this unbearable 
agony and sort of the direction is only to get worse. We're not anywhere in the dark ages or even the middle ages. So that from the perspective of your individual life on earth and what is possible to you, there's enormous positives possible. So to think that the direction intellectually, culturally, philosophically is bad is not to, is not and should never be used today as an excuse. I'm not going to do anything. Achievement's impossible. Um, if I were in a better world, I might achieve something. But in this world, that's not possible. That is not at all the lesson to take from Ayn Rand. Uh, it's certainly not the lesson I've taken from what she's arguing. I don't think she's ever arguing that it's at a point of nothing can be done. And so when she talked about Atlas and the strike, one of the things she said is, take literally what is meant literally, and don't take what is part of a story um, and a device and so on in the story as that's meant literally. What I'm telling you to do is find some place to retreat to, and, and I mean, we don't want to give too many spoilers away, I, I won't name what it is, and so, but it, it's, it's sort of to withdraw. That is not right, but what she said is, withdraw from the culture, and again, thinking of it as intellectually, philosophically, abandon its ideas, and don't allow them to infect your thinking and pick up better ideas and true ideas. And that's what she, uh, why she spent so much time on uh, articulating what objectivism is. Uh, I mean, she wouldn't put it like this, but I think we can. What she's telling you to do is pick up objectivism discard the bromides that are all wrong in today's culture and pick up objectivism and then fight, not um, withdraw. Maybe another way of putting this is the, the relevant way to go on strike against the culture uh, is to do precisely what we've been talking about today, which is, it's, which is, to, which is to criticize what needs to be criticized that's the intellectual separation that you're engaging in. And then to go pursue uh, your own positive life using uh, these ideas as an alternative. So I think that's a good place to stop. We've got a number of interesting questions and comments that have come in. So I think we should, we should move to those first. Yeah, definitely. And I think I wanna answer the one about the influence of objectivism first, because this, this connects to something where we were talking about before and I said, who's saying this? And now here's somebody saying it. Someone asks, is anyone, and this is a super chat question, so thank you for the, the super chat donation. Is anyone today charting the influence of objectivism on the political cultural life? Things like, and he mentions uh, Institute for Justice uh, uh, and a few other organizations, businesses and uh, institutes that I, I believe you know, have certain people working for them who are objectivists, this podcast, et cetera. Uh, these aren't dominant trends, but are they uh, negligible? Well, my first response to that um, would be, there is somebody who's charting the trends of the, what, what actual impact there is uh, of objectivism on the culture, and that is the Ayn Rand Institute. That's what we uh, devote our time to doing. We do, just like uh, Rand mentioned in her response to that reader, when there are developments in uh, the intellectual world or in academia that have some real positive significant influence, uh, we, we comment on them. And uh, there's going to be uh, more of that, more where that came from coming up at this uh, summer's objectivist conference, especially I think when Talf Swani does his uh, talk on ARI's vision for the future. So if, uh, if you haven't yet signed up for the, the online version of that conference, I encourage you to do so. Um, but Ankar, there's also, there's a, there's a possible implication in this question. I'm not sure if this is quite what the person meant. I'm not sure if they meant to be uh, uh, referencing the fact that there are objectivists involved in some of these organizations, or if perhaps he was referring to the fact that, well, they're they're trying to achieve positive things in the culture. And maybe one thing to flag here is just that the, the mere fact that somebody's doing something good, uh, doesn't, that doesn't by itself mean that it's an, in, an example of the influence of objectivism. This is something that Ayn Rand herself actually commented on 
in response to that same reader who wrote the question saying, why can't you give more examples of objectivism? And then he gives some examples of some inspiring quotations and things like that, but not ones that were by objectivists, even if they were things that objectivists might agree with. And I'll just briefly read what she said in response to that. She said, there are many statements, actions, and out of context virtues in people, which an objectivist might agree with, approve of, or admire. This does not make them examples of objectivism. Most men hold mixed premises. Most schools of thought are full of contradictions. One may find some elements of value, of truth, and of rationality in many people in schools. This does not make them objectivists. So that's just uh, flagging that for the for the sake of uh, clarity, in case anyone was wondering about that. Did you have anything to add in response to that question? Uh, no, I, I think what you said is uh, good and and an answer to it. I thought here's another again. It was a super chat question, so thank you for the donation. And it it um, it's not exactly a question, but it's worth commenting on. So it's the person says, I reread the lessons of Vietnam. So this is an essay by Ayn Rand that she wrote after the fall of Saigon. Um, so it's dated in 1974, but it actually was written in 1975. Uh, so she re read that essay, The Lessons of Vietnam, in thinking about Afghanistan. And then it continues, Ms. Rand's clarity and understanding of what could have been done and what was needed was helpful. As horrific as things are, clarity helps. And I agree with that. So you can, again, think of the lessons of Vietnam as the lesson is negative, And the overriding lesson um, is, again, uh, that Ayn Rand says what we should learn from this is how intellectually bankrupt the country is, and that we had no leadership, and particularly no intellectual leadership uh, in regard to our foreign policy, but more generally in regard to our government. That, and at the time she's writing, if you think of the, the in the mid-70s of how bad government is, I mean, this is Nixon's coming to an end, it's stagflation, it's, it, there's a real hopelessness, I think, in the 70s. But just having the perspective that it, you can understand how we got to this state you can identify the causes and you can see that the causes are not inevitable. That is to say that it's clarity, it's clarifying, and it's a source for hope in the sense of, okay, I have an idea of what would need to be done to avoid these kinds of things and to set us on a better path. Now, whether that, that hope can be realized, whether that can actually be achieved, that takes people working to achieve it. But just this, the clarity of versus the people sort of throwing up their hands and saying, like, I guess this is life or this is fake. That kind of hopelessness comes from a lack of understanding. And you mentioned the, the, how one gets hope by looking at the guidance offered in an essay like that at least this is something that we that that could have been done to avoid the tragedy of Vietnam. What's depressing is that these lessons were not learned uh, with regard to Afghanistan, apparently. Uh, and uh, the one thing I would say about that is that this is one of the this is one of the cases where, when the lessons weren't learned, we're going to be there to tell people about that. Uh, and we just two days ago, you and Elon went on to basically say, I told you so, uh, about what happened in Afghanistan, because the Institute's been commenting on this story for 20 years, and we've been, and, and people haven't followed the advice that we've proposed, and this is exactly what you get, and we'll be out there again doing it uh, when the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 comes around. Maybe people will be more receptive to what we have to say, given this, the track record of what happens when you don't heed this kind of advice. What should we look at next? Maybe um, one more or two more? Yeah, let's take, what time is it? Yeah, let's take one more. What's a good last one? We're looking through our list here. Well, how about, do you think it's, someone asks on Zoom, do you think it's negative to say no matter how bad something is, it could always be worse? That connects to the, the, the question of hope. 
Um, it's, I, I wouldn't put it that way. I, because it, that does have a kind of Pollyanna uh, aspect to it, a kind of groundless optimism. You know, we're in the best of all possible worlds. Uh, it, it could have been worse. Well, uh, to me, that seems to lack ambition. It seems to lack moral ambition. It, the, the proper attitude is that things could be so much better uh, if people make better choices based on better ideas that we don't have to settle for, you know, half good and winning a half battle that, that there's, and, and, and that's, that's, that's the lesson that, that Ayn Rand, I think, is trying to encourage people to learn in something like Atlas Shrugged, that the, 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 the way that she puts it is the, the world that you want is real, it's possible, and it's yours. Yeah, these kinds of, uh, you could call this a catchphrase. So this is something people often say to themselves. And with many of these kinds of catchphrases, they have more than one meaning. And it sometimes can be that it's a legitimate meaning. You can understand why this someone would find this helpful. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a uh excuse or rationalization to do nothing and this is what i think ben you were bringing up in regard to ambition so there is um when people sometimes tell themselves when they're in a bad situation the, and they're trying to get perspective it's yeah things could be a lot worse um uh okay a tree fell on my house but everybody could have been killed in it and we're here to we're all alive and we have to figure out now what to do. And if you do that to gain perspective in order to act, that is, so if this is not an occasion to give up, it's okay, yeah, something bad has happened, but if we're all dead, we wouldn't even be debating what do we do next? It's um, no, okay, we have to call the insurance, we have to move, find somewhere to live for a few months as the house is rebuilt or whatever. It's, so if you're using it as motivation to act, you can see doing that. But there's also people use it, well, it's not so bad. You can imagine it as worse. So why can't you live with this? And there it's then what you're doing is saying, yeah, okay, it's bad, but it's not that bad. So why do we have to do anything about it? And that is then an excuse for inaction. Um, and that is uh, a real negative. So it, it depends when someone uses this kind of phrase, it depends what they mean and why they're invoking. Maybe this is a good note to end on. Someone uh, on YouTube uh, quotes a line from Dr. Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, which I think is relevant here. Uh, the line is, the benevolent universe premise, which is an idea of Ayn Rand's, has nothing to do with, quote, optimism, nor is benevolence the attitude of a Pollyanna, the could have been worse kind of attitude. The corrective, he says, is not pessimism. The corrective is realism. And I think that's what we've been we've been urging today: the importance of uh, calling out the facts in the world as they are, as the only path forward to a better world. Okay, so I think we should wrap up and start by sharing uh, some resources for people in our audience who want to learn a little bit more about some of the ideas that we've talked about today. Uh, one of these is an essay that I mentioned uh, briefly, Ayn Rand's essay, How Does One Lead a Rational Life in an Irrational Society? This is in that book of hers, The Virtue of Selfishness. Uh, we have an online version of it, which you can go to if you go to uh, bit.ly slash rational hyphen life. Uh, also, some of the things that we talked about uh, toward the end of our conversation were about how to communicate with other people uh, to persuade them and motivate them to adopt better ideas. This is something that Ankar and I talked about at greater length in an earlier episode of New Ideal Live. How can we change people's minds about Ayn Rand's controversial ideas? And uh, that's on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can go straight to it at bit.ly slash changemindsar. I uh, also think we've got one more item in here. Uh, and Ankar, maybe you should just mention briefly what you thought was uh, significant about this essay for what we were talking about today, Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World. 
so you can take obviously from the title and think this is a negative essay and it's negative in the sense that it points out what has gone wrong in you can put it in america or more broadly the western world how could it be after a century of progress in the 19th century there's two world wars and communism and fascism sweeping the globe and so how is that possible and there's a perspective on it and that's obviously a negative trend but the the essay closes with about two pages of quotation from atlas shrugged and there it's like here's the anecdote here's the positive direction that we could head in if we embrace different ideas and i think that is always ayn rand's perspective so if someone tells me well this is a negative essay i don't know what that classification really means um, it's a misclassification in the end. And you can check that out. I can't remember if we have the text online, but at the very least, the uh, audio of her talk is online at bit.ly slash faith and force. Otherwise, if you enjoyed our episode today and you'd like to follow us more in the future, if you're watching on YouTube, you should be sure to uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, like this episode, hit that bell button so you can get notifications for when we go live and post new things in the future, comment on it, especially if it's after the fact you're watching the recording, if you add a comment uh, about what you liked or didn't like, we look at that and it helps optimize the algorithm in our favor. Same thing on Facebook, if you're watching there, please like the episode, share it, write a comment. And if you have any questions about uh, topics that came up today, consider sending us an email at newideal at einrand.org. Or if you have ideas for future episode topics, we, we read everything that comes in, reply to a lot of it, and sometimes we even do episodes that you suggest. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're about ready to adjourn, but we will continue our conversation in just a few minutes on Clubhouse. If you go to the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse, Ankar will Ankar and I will continue to discuss this. If you have uh, more thoughts on our topic today that you'd like to bring to the table, uh, that app you can download for either iOS or Android for free now, and uh, anybody can, can sign up. So Ankar, I will see you uh, on Clubhouse in just a few minutes. Next week's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Amish Adalja on the latest developments uh, concerning the pandemic. Uh, we'll be talking about vaccines versus the Delta variant. That will be next week at the same time, Wednesday, August 25th, I'll be interviewing Amish Adalja. See you all then. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ankar, and uh, we'll see you all next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.